we're going to talk about broken because we're talking about what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. And it affected every one of us. The one thing that we do know about us is that we are broken. Can you say, I am broken in some place? We got to do this together. I am broken in some place different than yours. You see, the one thing that sin did when it came into the world is it affected every single one of us. And sometimes we think about sin in that those heinous kind of things, those really bad kind of things. We don't think about how it affects us on a daily basis. And scripture is pretty clear. In fact, the scripture we're going to look at today is pretty clear. It affects us in in a way like this, shame. It affects us in the area of fear, and it affects us in the area of blame. And all of these areas that we deal with, we deal with on a regular basis. And one time in our life or another, sometimes more often, sometimes we see two or three of these coming together, or things that are just kind of roots off of shame and fear and blame. So if we turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, this is what we read. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now, this is the tree of life. The tree of life that God said, uh, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rather, he said, don't eat of that tree. You can eat of the tree of the knowledge of, uh, of, of, of life, but you cannot eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden. It is a tree that is going to bring good and evil into your mind. In other words, you say, what's wrong with that? Shouldn't we be able to know the difference between good and evil? In the beginning, God said, no. I don't even want you to know evil. I only want you to know good. Because the moment you begin to to compare good and evil, you begin to be God in your own world. You begin to evaluate yourself and you begin to evaluate others based on human goodness or badness. And so you become a kind of a judge. You become kind of the the one who looks and says, well, he's really good Christian and he's a great Christian and he's not such a good Christian. Or we'll say, you know, well, you know, they really love God, and but they really don't love God. And, and all of a sudden you begin to say, well, I'm, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And so the result of the fall is just that. So look what it says. She said it was good for, the, uh, good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirable to make her wise or one wise. She took the fruit and ate it. She gave it to her husband, uh, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves covering. And they heard the sound, or literally in the Hebrew, it's the voice. The voice. The voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves, and here's where shame comes in. They were hiding themselves from the presence, and this literally means the face of God. When you hide yourself from the face of God, you don't want God to see you. You don't want God to know what you feel or what you do or what's going on. Isn't it interesting? We think we can hide from God. 
We try to avoid God. We try to say, well, God, I'm just going to bail out of God for a while. Even the psalmist said, you know, where can I go from thy presence or from thy face? If I ascend into the heavens, behold, thou art there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, thou art there. You see, God is ever-present, always with us all the time. And it says so, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Verse 9, then the Lord called Adam and said, where are you? You see, the question wasn't really an inquiry as much as it was, are you willing to recognize that I know what you've done? This is what the Bible calls confession. Are you willing to agree with me that you ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I told you not to eat from? And so God asked this question, and as, as Adam begins to deal with it, he said in verse 10, I heard your voice in the garden. I heard your voice in the garden. You know what I love about this story is, even though they had violated God's command, God did not leave them. See, that's the good news. Think about it like this. Regardless where you go or what you do, God never leaves you. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be there with you. I am your God. Though you stumble, though you fall, I am your God. And look what he said. And I was afraid. I was fearful because I was naked and I hid myself. I hid myself. That's the idea of shame. I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you I should, you should not eat? And of course he did. And of course God knew that. But he was trying to get Adam to come to a point of realization, of self-realizing what was really going on in his life. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, whose fault was it? It was God's fault, right? God, if you would have given me a different woman, all would have been well. And I'm sure Eve would have said, if you'd have given me a different what? Say it, ladies, a different what? Man, all would be well. But you see, it was just a result of being broken. She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. It just sounds like a passive experience, doesn't it? It's almost like Adam came home from tending the garden and Eve had made a, you know, an apple pie and said, would you like a slice? Of course I would. And then when he ate it, he goes, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on here? We need some fig leaves around here. You see, but it wasn't like that, was it? He chose just like she chose to eat and to violate God's command. And the Lord said unto woman, what is this you have done? Now he wants to go, okay, I've been talking to Adam. Now I need to talk to the woman in the, on the same level. Can we talk about this? Now, when we think about these uh, areas of, of shame and fear and blame, I want you to think a little bit differently here. I want you to think in terms of, This brokenness, kind of like a pot, okay? And what happens is that when you drop something and you break it, we call it broken. And depending on the way we look at that item and the value of it, what do we do? Can we fix it? I got a remote control helicopter for Christmas. 
All right. It's just a little inexpensive one. It's not really, really that expensive. It's pretty, pretty cheap, pretty fun. But I got it out for the first time, just opened it. You know, I like to make my Christmas gifts last a long time. You know what I'm talking about? So we got it out. We put the batteries in it, and I flew it around. And then uh, Crosby was the first one to fly it. Okay? So he wants to fly it first. He's three. Now, if you learn anything about flying toy helicopters, you don't give the controller to a three-year-old. That's the first lesson I learned yesterday. Because the five-year-old is going to be disappointed. Because they're not going to get to fly the helicopter. So all of a sudden, what does he do? He takes it, we're inside, he pulls the trigger as hard as it goes, it goes up, slams on the ceiling, flies over to the left, slams on the wall, drops to the bottom, it's done. The first words out of Cruz's mouth are, you broke it. You're to blame. What happens to him? Immediately, he feels shame. Now he feels what? Fear. Am I going to be punished? And you can see all three of these working themselves out right there in that one experience. What's really interesting is the Japanese have a technique for repairing broken pottery with seams of gold. They've come to cherish imperfection of a broken pot. What they actually do is they see it as a creative addition. They actually call it a rebirth. When something has suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. They actually take a resin and they take gold dust and they repair that, and that becomes the preferred pot over the one that has not been broken. Because now it's a reminder of its value. It's a great illustration when we think about our own lives. That when God begins the process of rebuilding or fixing you, which never stops, by the way, it goes on your whole life, does it not? God looks and says, you know what? I'm going to put gold where you see pain. I'm going to put resin and I'm going to bring that together where you see disjointedness. Because I want you to know what's great about you is not that you're perfect because you're not. What's great about you is that I can fix you. I can restore you. I can heal you. When I was a kid, I, was, I had a paper route, as most kids did in that day. And as I was riding that bike, I didn't have a very good paper bike. And I put all the papers on the front, and it was, it was front heavy. And I was trying to go up a hill, and I was pedaling, and they had just graveled the roads. They used to put this tar down and gravel it in Denver. And as I was riding, I went over the handlebars. Both my knuckles scraped across that, and I got all these scars on my knuckles. Of course, now when I was in school, I told everybody it was the it was the fights I were in, and you know you kind of got to make up a little bit of a story, you know, the paper bike right, you know, wreck. But you know, one day I was looking down at those scars, and you can still see them. I was looking down, and I was thinking about this a few years ago. You know what? A scar is a reminder of the healing power of God. It's not an open wound. And so when we begin to see what, what, is, what is Adam and Eve going to experience in there, they experience, first of all, the voice of God. The voice of God. I've never heard God in an audible voice. I've heard him much louder in my own heart. I've never heard God in an audio, audio, uh, audible voice, but I've heard him through the scriptures. I've seen him work and speak in different ways. 
In chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, they heard the sound or the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. In the Aramaic, they used the word memra. And memra was actually uh, the equivalent of what we would look at when we would see the word logos. It says uh, uh, this in Psalm 33 and verse 6, by the word the memra of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Who was that walking in the cool of the garden? It was the voice of God. The rabbis would say it was the memra. It was, it was the tangible, visible manifestation of the living God. It was the son of God who walked in the cool of the garden. It's the equivalent of John chapter 1 and verse 1. Look at this scripture. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I believe what Adam and Eve experienced there was some kind of a manifestation of God, some, something more than a voice. I've never seen a voice walking, have you? I've seen a man walking, I've seen a woman walking, I've never seen a voice walking. There's something deeper here, there's something that, that God wants us to understand. And I think in that process, he wants us to, to understand how to hear the voice of God. Here's two suggestions I give to you. Number one, quiet the voices in your head. Anybody have voices in your head? And I don't mean you're like, you, you need to be put away somewhere. I mean, you have voices in your head and you're going, their little voices are talking to you. You should do this. You, have you ever thought about that? And, uh, and what are you doing? And, and, and anybody experience that? Raise your hand if you do. Okay, a few of you. What about the rest of you? Just like, you just like move through life. You never hear anything, right? Never talk to yourself. Never answer yourself. Yeah, I don't believe that. Okay, there is an inner critic inside of your head that will prevent you from hearing the voice of God. That critic labors day and night and without mercy. It's always trying to remind you of, of how you don't measure up, how you're to be blamed or shamed or what your fears are. And when, the, when that inner critic inside of you begins to operate like this, you can't hear the voice of God. That's why so often God says, be still and know that I am God. In other words, still the voices in your head. Because you'll never be able to hear the voice of God without that. That's why Jesus said, my sheep, they what? They hear my voice. How do they do that? Sheep are fearful. They have to be quiet. They have to be set aside in a place where they don't, aren't, aren't frightened and quickly moved. And so are we. The second thing is choose his, that is God's voice, above your own. You see, here's how I've come to understand the difference between God's voice, my voice, the voice of the enemy, and just circumstances. It is that God is always rich and loving and inviting. My voice or the enemy's voice is always nagging and condemning. You ever feel like that nagging? You've got to do this, got to do this, God. It's the tyranny of the urgent. You see, when your mind is not focused on God, when you're not hearing the voice of God, you've, you're under this tyranny of the urgent. He's going, what, what, well, what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you thinking? How do you figure it out? And you see, you know that's not the voice of God. Any voice in your head that brings you emotionally down is not the voice of God. It's your voice or the voice of the enemy. 
Any voice that changes you into a uh, counter, let's say, Christian, in other words, you respond in a way that's not Christian, is not the voice of God. It's the voice of the enemy. And by very simply just taking a few principles, you can begin to say, okay, God, I need to hear from you. Because what do you want? You want to see the presence of God come in your life. Let's talk about the presence of God for a moment. Again, back in chapter 3 and verse 8, in the second part of that verse, uh, listen to what it says. Adam and his wife hid shame themselves from the presence or the face of God among the trees in the garden. Ernest Hemingway put it like this. The world breaks everyone. Then some become strong at the broken places. You know, I've known people in, in ministry over years. I've known, uh, as we've pastored congregations, I've known people that have had the, the hardest, the most tragic, the most difficult life you could ever imagine. But you'd never know it. You know why? Because they let God heal them in the broken places. They became like the pot fixed with resin and gold. And they were for the glory of God. The apostle Paul on one occasion prayed, he said, God, I've got this thorn in my flesh. We don't know what it was. He said, I beseech three times, God, take it away, take it away. And you know what God said? My grace is sufficient for you. For when you are weak, then are you what? Then you're strong. Well, how can that be? Because as long as you operate in your human strength, uh, strength, you cannot find the power and access the power of almighty God. You're just on your own. You're just doing what you do. Well, as we go on, think about it like this. The presence of God opens the way for the Spirit of God. You say, what is the presence of God? The presence of God is when I'm aware of him. It's when he shows up in a way that I, I know he's here. And it's so simple, really. If, if you just kind of stop for a moment and say something like this, God, I need to be aware of your presence right now. Just say in your own heart right now, God, I need to be aware of your presence right now. I don't need my presence. I need your presence. I need your spirit just to bring calm and joy and power and love. Spirit of God, I welcome you. I welcome you. You see, when you welcome the spirit of God, when you welcome the presence of God, what it does is it it takes you out of everything else that you're in the presence of that is distracting you, that's making life difficult for you. And so we go on. It also brings fullness of joy. You see, when I enter into his presence, I find joy. I don't live in my own strength, my own happiness. I live in his joy. Bill Johnson put it like this. His people are to manifest the beauty of his rule to a world of unbelief. We have been chosen for this very purpose. You know what happens when you live in joy and you're around somebody that doesn't know God? They go, why are you so happy? And you go, well, it's just, you know, I just have this relationship with God. And I'll, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you, you just think you're perfect, don't you? No, I don't think I'm perfect at all. Nobody believes that. Nobody believes that about anybody. What I do know is his joy can be inside of you and his joy can come out of you and and you just go, well, where did that come from? Well, it came from the spirit of God inside of you because the presence of God brings, let's say it together, what? Oh my gosh, that was pitiful. Wow. We got to try that again because the presence of the Lord brings what? Do you believe that? Okay, everybody stand up. 
you're just too tired today. You're just too sleepy. I don't know what's been going on. Too late night movies, whatever. Netflix is killing you. You got it? Okay. Now, I want you to look at somebody, and as loud as you're willing to say it, I want you to say, I have joy, okay? Wow, some of you are really good at this. Let's do it one more time. Now, how many of you believe the person that you were looking at, they really had joy? Just raise your hand. You believed it. You believed it? You believed it? Amen? Okay, sit down. We may have to do aerobic sermons here before long. All right, now, so joy. So it brings in joy. Also, we get the favor of God, the favor of God. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9. Then the Lord called to Adam and said unto him, where are you? You know what that is? When you hear God say something like that, he's giving you favor. Because he hasn't left you. He loves you. He's next to you. Where are you? I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you. I want to know where you are because I want to love you. I want to minister to you. I want to be your God. I'm not mad. I'm not isolating you out. I'm trying to minister grace to you. Here's the truth. God spares no expense to pursue an intimate relationship with his children. God spares no expense to pursue an intimate relationship with his children. Man's insecurity and unworthiness drives him away from intimacy with God. You see, when you live, we could put a lot of words up here. We could say insecurity. We could put it in here under fear. That's an insecurity. What it does is it drives you away from an intimate relationship with God. The very thing that should drive you to God drives you away from God. The very thing that drives you from God should drive you to God. The very thing that causes you to to feel guilty should bring you to God, not away from God. You see, we operate by this crazy formula, and I want you to write this formula down. It goes like this. See if I have room here, okay? Let's just put it up here. My self-worth, can you say that with me? My self-worth. Now, I'm not talking about a psychological, goofy, something kind of thought. I'm talking about the way God sees you, how you see yourself. This is the formula we work with. It equals my performance. This is a bad formula, by the way, just so you know. I'm not giving you one to live by. My performance plus others' opinions. If you operate by this, you will never be happy in your life. Never. It's impossible. Here's why. Because if this is where you're finding value in this formula, that you perform well, you always perform well, plus how other people see you, you will find yourself always, always, always in a deficit and always broken. It'll never change. It'll never change. Here's why. Because you're not always going to perform well. You're not perfect. Can you say that with me? I'm not perfect. Let's say it. I'm not perfect. Not that I had to tell you that, but you have to be reminded of it once in a while, right? Don't we all? Okay, so I'm not perfect. I'm not always going to perform well. And the minute I do something good, somebody else does something better, raises the ante, and I feel in deficit all over again. Others' opinions. If you operate by how other people see you and view you, you will be an unhappy person. 
How many of you had a really good friend that you thought was your best friend and did you wrong? Raise your hand. How did it feel? Horrible, right? Okay, you know what? You know why it hurts so bad? Because you thought they were above that. You really thought your friend was above that. You forgot that they were, say it, they were broken. Of course they're going to break things. They're broken people. You see, that's why Christ came, not to make us perfect, but to get us an understanding of how we deal with shame, fear, and blame as broken people, and we operate by a different formula. Instead of my self-worth equals my performance and others' opinions, I have to operate on this formula. My self-worth, let's say it together, my self-worth equals Christ's view of me. You see, if you'll look at it from God's perspective, everything changes. Now it's not about you, it's about him. It's about the way he loves you. If he loved you when you were yet sinners, Romans chapter 5, how much more does he love you now as as sons and daughters? If his grace was sufficient then when you were at enmity with God, how much more is his grace sufficient now? And here's what we find. God will often shower his favor on us to draw us back into an intimate relationship. Sometimes you find yourself isolated from God, separated from God, and you know what God will do? God will bless you in some way, and you go, I don't, God, why are you blessing me now? Why now, God? I just feel so unworthy because i got to do something to bring you back into relationship. Let's go back to the helicopter. Crosby crashes the helicopter into the ceiling, slams it on the wall. It drops to the ground. All of a sudden, what happens is Cruz says, you're at fault. He feels shameful, and now he's afraid. What am I going to do? And here's what I did. I looked at him, and I said, hey, it's all right. We'll get another one. His face went from sadness to a big smile, and he said, yeah, Papa, we'll get another one. That's what the Father says to you. When you slam your helicopter into the wall, Fill in the blank, whatever your helicopter is. And you feel blame, and you feel shame, and you feel afraid. Know that the Father looks at you with a smile on his face and says, we'll get another one. We'll take care of you. We'll take care of you. Amen? If he doesn't do that, he's not much of a God. We are most like him when we act like that. We are least like him when we act the opposite of that. When we said, what did you do? I can't believe you did that. Shame on you. Shame on you, Crosby. You're to blame. Why didn't you know better as a three-year-old? Hey, we're all three-year-olds. That's what Jesus said on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Shame on you. You, You're going to be punished. You go to your room till you think about what it's like. That's not God, and that's not Christianity. That's religion. That's religion. I want you right now in your own heart, just in your own way, just say, God, whatever my helicopter is, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for bringing me back into your presence. You know what I found about God's favor? It's always available. His favor is just always available. Always available and always unexpected. I never expect God to be, bring the favor he does. Go, God, why do you do that? You just, because I'm God. Because I love my children. I just love them. 
I love them. I love the story in Exodus chapter 12 where God has taken uh, Israel and he's going to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And they're going to need they're going to need some resources as they get into the land. They're going to need some gold and some silver. They're going to need some stuff. And they're slaves. God loves to take a slave and turn him into a king. God loves to take a slave and turn him into a prince. God loves to take your life and said, let me bless you when you don't deserve it so you know, so you don't begin to think you deserve it when you're good. Did you hear that? I'm going to bless you when you don't deserve it so you won't think you deserve it when you're good. And you substitute human goodness for the new birth. You substitute human goodness for righteousness that I give to you. So he takes the, the, uh, the nation of Israel and he says, I want you to go door to door to every house of the Egyptians and I want you to ask them for silver and gold. They're slaves. Their job has been building bricks from mud and straw. They're slaves. They have nothing to offer. I want you to go knock on the door, and when you knock on the door, you say to the Egyptian, hello, I need your gold, I need your silver, we're leaving town. Stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life, and yet that's what God does. It really is. And what do they do? They gave them, the scripture says, as much as they wanted. Look at what it says, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now in case you get the wrong idea, it wasn't to spend on themselves. They had all that gold and all that silver. And you know what they were going to do? God was a principle of scripture. God always has a provision before you have a problem. So what were they going to do with that gold and that silver? They were going to construct the tabernacle for the worship of God. God doesn't bless you with riches or with his favor so you can bless yourself, but so you can bless the Lord, so you can worship God. So when you look at what you have and you look at your car, you look at your house, you look at your savings account, what you do is you look at it and say, you know, it's not me, it's you, God. It may not be as much as you want. You may have had more at a previous time in your life, but you'll always look at it and say, thank you, God, because it's always, the provision is always to bless the Lord. It's always about him, amen? It's always about God. Let me give you some life applications. Here's the first one. You have to seek the presence of God. Seek him. Seek him. God, I, I'm looking for your presence. I want, I want to be in the midst of your presence and your power. And God, I just want to know you. And his presence drives out of us the presence of all the other stuff. And then God will use your enemies to bless you. You'll be surprised how God will use those whom you think are enemies to bless you as God begins to pour his favor out on you. There's a song we sang earlier. We're going to sing it again. The band's going to come. It says, we will not be shaken. It's easy to sing a song and not really hear it. So I want you to hear it as they come, and then we're going to sing it. For we trust in our God, and through his unfailing love, we will not be shaken. We will not be shaken. We will not be shaken. Though the battle rages, we will stand in the fight, though the armies rise up against us on all sides. We will not be shaken. We will not be shaken. 
we will not be shaken. For in the hour of our darkest day, we will not tremble, we will not be afraid. Hope is rising like the light of dawn. Our God is for us, he is overcome. All those against him will fall, for our God is stronger. He can do all things. No higher name we can call, for Jesus is greater. We can do all things. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me? Father, as we prepare our hearts right now in prayer, just to to absorb in something that the Spirit of God said, something you said, Spirit, today through uh, the Word of God, through the illustration, through the message. However you spoke to each one of us, God, I believe you spoke to everyone here in some way. It wasn't my voice. It was your voice that really got to the deep of things made that application, brought that hope, brought that joy, maybe brought some clarity to your thinking, maybe caused you to rethink even the way that you hear his voice and what those voices are in your head. But God, that message of that song is a message for us every day and every week. We will not be shaken. Though we live in this world, we're not of this world. Though we do battles, our battles are not in the flesh, they're in the spiritual realm. And God, we don't want to be shaken in any way. So I pray right now, this is a spirit of power and joy and life and love fall on all of us as we sing this song, We Will Not Be Shaken. And we just let the Spirit of God minister to us right now. Just let Him minister to you.